Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Tonight, we're going to have a group of esteemed panelists on talking about key technologies, talking really about how coronavirus has impacted their practices uh, across the U.S. Uh, we have with us Caroline Bamal, who's a full professor, newly minted full professor of ophthalmology at Tufts Eye Center in Boston. We have Maria Baracol, who is the director of Baracol and Associates in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And finally, we have Judy Kim, who is a full professor of ophthalmology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. It is May 12th, 2020, and presently we have 4.2 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide with 300,000 deaths, 1.3 million cases in the United States with over 81,000 deaths. I'd like to welcome everybody here to the uh, new Retina Radio. And let's start off by just getting an idea of your situation in your area. Uh, Caroline, let's start out with you in Boston. How are things in Boston uh, in general uh, medically? Thanks, John. Thank you for having me um, on tonight. In Boston, I think that um, we're sort of past the, past the peak and cases, the number of new cases is coming down, although the number of deaths has stayed relatively stable. There's some fluctuation. I think that um, hospitals are starting to plan for the next step, and that would be, you know, starting to open up a bit to do cases that have been waiting that are not completely elective, but patients that need to be taken care of with other things. And I think that there's more availability of testing. People are less concerned about having enough PPE and ventilators. But then there's also the concern about if we open up too early, is there going to be another wave of, of illnesses? And so I think that we are currently, um, the next decision about what's going to be going on with schools and businesses is going to be happening in mid-May. But I think overall that it's been very conservative in this state. So we'll see what happens next. Have any of the hospitals been overwhelmed? Have there been any shortages of ICU beds and whatnot? I think between, well, I'm at Tufts Medical Center and there's um, Mass General and Brigham, Beth Israel, Boston Medical Center. And those are the main downtown hospitals, as well as the hospitals outside of Boston. Everyone is taking care of um, these patients that need this, you know, intense medical care. And I know that there's been a lot of like, transferring between hospitals and people are working together. For example, if there's not enough ICU beds in one hospital, a patient will go to another hospital. I take care of the uh, premature infants in the NICU. And so one hospital transferred their infants to our NICU because they needed the um, respiratory equipment for adult patients. So there's been a lot of, everyone has been working together and doing their best to share and take care of these patients. And Carolyn, you mentioned that you were at Tufts. How, what's the status of the ophthalmology department at Tufts? So currently we're seeing 
patients who need to be seen with urgent problems. And um, I think that most of the urgent problems, not all of them, but a lot of them do come to retina. So, uh, and in fact, and I was hearing Dr. Kim say this before, in some ways, things are run at a different tempo than we're used to, but actually we're seeing in a way more patients because some of the peripheral practices might have closed down or they're not working. So almost all of the patients I see need to have something done. Either they need to have an intravitreal injection or they're a brand new patient or they have a retinal detachment or for example, we have a, a trauma case that we're doing this week. So in some ways, it's just a, it's a slower tempo, but everyone seems to have an emergency or an acute problem. And a lot of patients are afraid to come in. We have an office location in the main hospital, and um, it's in a medical building attached to the hospital. And I, you know, it's safe to come there, but people are afraid. They're afraid to even come into Boston, into the city. And then I'm very fortunate. I work in an office in Wellesley, and patients are more apt to come there to get their care. So I've opened up more office hours in this, uh, in this peripheral office to accommodate more patients from all over. Okay. Maria in San Juan, Puerto Rico, how are things generally from a medical standpoint? Well, we did uh, a very strict lockdown since uh, March 16th, which was actually, it started to relax uh, last Monday. So before, you know, no elective things could be done. Uh, all the ASCs were closed except for emergencies. Uh, and actually we haven't, when you look at per capita, we really don't have that many uh, cases or deaths. I think we are way down at the bottom. Uh, you know, we were seeing with more testing, we're seeing more cases, but we expected to have the ICUs be overwhelmed and that has not been the case. Uh, on the downside is that we, we were very good at controlling this, but people are not coming into the hospitals. So some of the hospitals have had to lay off staff because, you know, they're not doing, you know, any of the routine things and that. So it's sort of like a very uh, strange, uh, strange thing. Um, now, uh, what I did was when I, I was just seeing emergencies, I gave in the answering machine in my office, I just gave everybody my cell phone. So my patients would call me for all sorts of things like, for example, uh, tell, you know, asking me they had a red eye, they had this. So I did a lot of like telemedicine by phone, actually. And I could be able to like triage, sometimes they had, you know, chalation or stuff like that. Um, or I was able to like tell them, you know, when, to, when I would see them and, and whatnot. But uh, starting this week, actually, now I'm, I'm working from like seven to like two. And most of what I'm seeing are like, you know, injections, detachments, new patients that have something urgent uh, and what, you know, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's been a challenge to work uh, in this new way. I agree with Caroline, it's much more efficient because we're not seeing anything routine, you know, everything that comes needs to have something done. So Maria, are you saying that you were strictly off only seeing emergencies from March 16th until last week? Exactly. Wow. And, and the rest? Injections, yes. Okay. So, and, and most Puerto Ricans were being very strict about the social distancing, stay at home and whatnot. Well, we have a curfew at 7 p.m. From 7 p.m. until 5 a.m., there's a very strict curfew. You can't be on the streets. 
all the restaurants, all the beaches are closed, all the parks were closed. Uh, everybody has to wear masks in public. Uh, so it actually has been, and if you go to like the grocery store, you, they only let very few people go in at a time. And, you know, the line, if you're waiting in line has to be six feet. So it was a very, very strict, uh, which, which we really need because we don't really have the resources to have like, you know, a, an overwhelmed system with everybody needing an ICU bed that we don't have. Absolutely. So, so it actually worked very well, I think. And Judy, in Milwaukee, how are things from a medical perspective and then uh, in the ophthalmology landscape? So Wisconsin, fortunately, um, nothing ever happens. <laughs> We're not as populated <laughs> like Boston or New York. Um, so fortunately, the number of cases um, uh, weren't uh, as high as they were predicting. Um, so the uh, uh, ICU beds and um, ventilators, um, we didn't have any shortage uh, in most of the hospitals, actually. And uh, number-wise, we're actually coming down as well. However, the um, state is still in the uh, safe at home um, uh, uh, regulations. So most of the people, pay, uh, um, uh, population is staying at home and not going to work either, except for essential uh, workers. Um, Grocery-wise, uh, Maria said, you know, there's six feet separation, uh, social, uh, so social distancing recommended, but masks, um, Wisconsinites are, I think, about half and half. Um, some are wearing it, some are not, and um, um, I, I don't think they're as um, uh, used to wearing one. Uh, like in Asia, where everybody wears it pretty much 100% of the time, uh, some of my relatives say they stay in line an hour each day to get two rationed uh, masks um, for every uh, Korean population. Um, but um, obviously here it's not. But when they come to a hospital, uh, our clinic, um, if uh, they don't have a mask, they're actually given, everyone is given a mask. So the minute they step into our um our department, um, um, uh, there is a person greeting them, asking about um, any new symptoms, and then um, if they don't have a mask, they're given, and then only then they are uh, sent up to the uh, elevator to our respective floors. Um, I, I think, it, you know, one of the things in ophthalmology uh, in, in, during this war, uh, time, my template is, you know, definitely lessened, not as full, um, but it didn't decline as much as some um, uh, of uh, my other retina colleagues around the country where they said, you know, they're only seeing 10% or 20 to 30, 30% of their usual volume. Uh, being in a university at Medical College of Wisconsin, we've uh, worked on, you know, triaging um, the routine uh, annual checkups to optometrists and general ophthalmologists. So I've been seeing mostly people who need actual care such as injections or post-ops uh, or uh, consultations. So um, the actual number hasn't uh, declined as much as I thought it would. Uh, and then the surgery like Carolina, it actually went up because uh, community hospitals are closed and um, 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 they're not doing surgery. So they're all funneling to us or the uh, general ophthalmology office is not even open. So the, the, the office gets a call of an, uh, you know, change in vision or whatnot, then they would just, uh, without even seeing the patients, they just go to the eye institute. So we've been seeing, you know, a lot of these um, 
urgent change and vision. One of the nice thing about having this longer slot, you know, time between uh, patients um, is that I could talk to some of these patients, you know, although we uh, work on efficiency and getting them out um, in a timely fashion, um, most of it is in the waiting room. We try to not to have any people wait as much as uh, possible by just getting them right into the uh, exam room. And each patient occupies a exam room until they're all done. And then we wash it all down before the next patient gets put in. And in some cases, we actually do OCT or optos, uh, um, fundus photos beforehand, before even dilation, because those can be done even through undilated pupils. So we sometimes do imaging first before they actually get roomed. So we're trying different ways to not move the patients as much as possible and not put them in the waiting room as much as possible. But once they're in the room and they're one-on-one -on -one with me, they're wearing masks, I'm wearing masks, we're you know, separated. I try to spend more time with them because many of them, I'm the first one they're talking to face to face <laughs> after four to six weeks of hibernation. Uh, and many of them said, you know, Dr. Kim coming to the Eye Institute is my event of the month. <laughs> and one of the patients said, you know, Dr. Kim, I can speak cat language now because the only live being that I've been speaking to is my cat. So I think she and I can talk to each other. So I try to um, address not just the eyes, but their emotional, psychological health. Judy, you touched on a lot of things that I wanted to get into a little bit more. First of all, when the patients arrive, are their families waiting in the car? Do you take a temperature? And then you're saying that you work them up and keep them in the same room pretty much for the entire visit. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, so the patients, we are allowed one um, uh, family member um, per patient if they want to bring it. Because many of my patients are elderly, uh, so they come with a ride. So if uh, the family member wants to come in, they're there, they uh, serve as extra set of years for my education and instructions. So I've always had patients and uh, family members in the room before, so um, um, our department allows one additional family member, but no more, and they're all masked also. If a family member obviously wants to wait in the car, they're uh, um, welcome to. Um, we don't take temperature, but um, one to two days before the, the appointment, every patient is called by our techs for COVID symptom um, question screening. So uh, in my chart, I know that they already been screened. Um, and if they have not been screened, um, before they come into the, uh, the eye clinic, they get those asks. Um, I saw uh, an art, uh, article about uh, body temperature scanner, scanner in South Korea, where you, you know you could just scan, just like in TSA, they could see you whether you have a, a metal or not. Um, they could scan your body temperature, and I, I'm you know thinking maybe something like that might be nice for technology for the future, where as the patients come in, we could just sort of see who has high temperature or not, so we don't have to actually do the temperature testing. Um, and then, yeah, when they, once they are in the room, um, the photographer takes the patient out of that room. That room stays empty until the OCT is done, and then that patient's put back in. That's great. That's very, very innovative. Maria, 
Are you doing anything different with patients and their family? Are you checking temperatures? Are you doing fewer exams and more injection only? Yes. Uh, so this is, this is our thing. Uh, when, when the patient is given the appointment, they're asked for symptoms, but when they come in, they're all checked for temperature. They all, all are told to come in alone, you know, to come into the office alone. Their family members can wait in the car in the parking lot or, you know, in the lobby outside, et cetera unless they really need help. And then, you know, the waiting room is set with like six feet uh, away. Uh, so it's, it only has usually like three or four people waiting. The techs uh, take their vision and they do all the testing before if it needs. I go through the charts before and I tell them if I think they need something or not. And if it's a new patient, they always ask me beforehand. So when I actually see the patient, they have everything. If it's an injection and they're on a routine protocol, I'm not doing OCTs. They just come in, you know, they, you know, they check the vision and they get the injection. So it's actually very, very quick. I try, you know, not to talk a lot because I don't want the patient to be in a lot. I have a lot of patients that this has been their only exit out since March because, um, you know, people here are, are, are very scared too. I, I, I don't, my office is not in a, in a hospital. It's in a, you know, a, a building with offices. So in that sense, they're not as scared. A lot of, you know, my husband who works, his office is in a hospital. A lot of patients are afraid to go into hospitals because they think, you know, they can be contaminated that way. Uh, and, and from that standpoint, I would say that I, I have learned a lot of things that I want to do moving on. You know, a lot of our patients come in with a lot of family members and small kids and this and that. And I think that is going to change completely. You know, because I think, you know, the, the risk of anybody getting infected. So in a sense, that is a good thing. I think we have become a lot more efficient. You know, in the past, we would do OCTs every month, you know, when somebody came in for it. And, and most of the time that is unnecessary. Their vision hasn't changed. So I think we, ha we will become more efficient and more streamlined moving forward. I think, you know, I'm thinking of ways of maybe use telemedicine for some of the follow-ups. You know, because the whole thing of seeing someone, you know, day one, post-surgery, then in a week, then, you know, uh, I think we can revisit that depending on the cases. So, so I think we're doing a lot of things just because we have been doing them for 30 years uh, without really thinking about whether they need to be done and without any data to that effect. You know, Maria, it's very interesting. I'm, you're the first person I've heard talk about doing telemedicine for a post-operative visit. Um, that's very innovative. Uh, how do you think we would manage pressure? Do you think that's necessary to check pressure? Or? Well, I think, for example, most of my patients I put on Diamox anyway. And I think probably seeing them post-op day one or two is important. But depending on how that is, and if a patient does not have gas in the eye or just have air or has non-expansible SF6 and the pressure is okay, uh, you could, you, you don't necessarily have to see them in a week. You know, I think there's a lot of, depending on the cases, I think there's a lot of uh, leeway that we can do to actually see these patients less. I think also using longer acting agents, for example, you know, my patients on ILEA that I may see every eight weeks versus the ones on Ivastin that I have to see every four, you know, may inject every four or, you know, patients with Luvian that you really don't have to follow closely at all, you know, some of the patients with Osterdex. So I think we really have to think about, in the past, we never thought about the convenience of the patient. 
patient would come in, you know, it's okay, you know, come in every three weeks, every four weeks as if they didn't have anything better to do. And, and maybe some retired person doesn't have anything better to do, but it's really onerous for, for the whole system, for people who drives them, you know, they can't drive, you know, economically, it is, it is really a huge burden. And I think we have to really rethink that. And, you know, with the advent of home OCT, I think it gives us an even greater opportunity to use telemedicine. You know, some places are using telemedicine and, you know, the patient comes in for imaging and then gets a call from the doctor instead of having to have everything done on the same day. And I'm also, you know, changing my thinking. In the past, I had them come in and they would get everything done the same day because it was more convenient for them if they needed a fluorescein, this, that, everything. So they could be many hours in my office if they needed a field for some reason. So, uh, so I think now, you know, it's a paradigm shift. Now we're trying to Maybe if they have to come more than once, but be there very, very briefly, that may be better. You know, it's, it's, there will be a lot of changes, you know, and we have to figure out what, what, what works, you know, at the end of all of this, when this normalizes a little bit more. That's great. You jumped in with both feet. We're going to get back to some of those things you talked about in more depth. Carolyn, let's come to you. What are you doing differently during this era? And what do you think that you're doing differently will continue uh, into the future beyond COVID-19? Well, Judy and Maria touched on so many things that I agree with. I think that one of the big things is I'm not just thinking about the patients, but I'm also thinking about my staff because I, th I think a lot of my staff has anxiety about the situation. You know, there's so many unknowns that we all have. So we don't just have to treat the patient coming in, but we have to kind of also make sure our staff feels that they're safe and taken care of. So when you're talking about things like having family members come in, you know, staff might have been told, oh, not to let family members come in. But I think family members often do need to come in with the patient. So we have to find a good balance to make everyone feel safe. I think the one thing that I've done is really streamline the examination. And I was fairly good at this before. For example, if someone doesn't need an OCT, if they have a PVD, uh, you know, I don't do one just as a screen or whatever. You know, I'd like to do what patients need. But if someone has a discoform scar in one eye, I don't do an OCT if, if it's not going to change management. So these are the things I do. And one thing I'll often do is I'll go through the patient list the day before. And I'll look and I'll write down instructions for every patient. Like, and if I see that there's more than one or two patients in the office and I know someone needs a picture, I'll send them for an OCT beforehand. And if they can go direct for injection, they'll go direct for injection. So very, very streamlined. And patients, have, you know, like Judy said, they're, they're so happy. They're actually so grateful that we're there to see them. You know, I, they send letters. I say... They, don't thank me, thank the staff, because the staff is also, you know, they're coming in, the techs and uh, people at the desk. So I, I'm really grateful that they're coming in and helping. And then the other thing is, I actually, um, in, the, in the throes of all of this, I completely changed the way I do an injection. And I sort of used to use, many years ago, I used subconjolito, and then I used um, actin, and now I've switched to just using propericane and holding a pledget. 
And I uh, found that, you know, most patients are very comfortable and just anything to kind of streamline and make sure my patients are as comfortable as they can be. And the other thing I do actually that's been very helpful is I'll make their appointment right when they're sitting in the room so they don't have to go back out to the front desk. And if I'm busy, I'll like, you know, call out to the front desk. I'll say, make this lit, make so-and-so an appointment in six weeks, same time. So they'll just walk right out. So that's worked out really well. And that has saved us a lot of, you know, patient time. And it's also reduced the patient's interaction with people in the office. That's really brilliant because in a, in a larger setting, like a university setting, you can have these very voluminous offices where patients have to walk and encounter other patients, wait behind other patients. That is such a great idea that I've not heard anybody say before. Caroline, are you using telemedicine in any way, either calling patients in advance to get a history or are you bringing them in and doing any kind of telemedicine programs? Well, I think that there definitely is a place for telemedicine there's different, you know, there's telemedicine with video and telemedicine kind of telephone calls. And I think there's a place for telemedicine with video, but I have not found it for me yet. Um, most of my patients don't have smartphones. They're not that familiar with them. I think it would be something maybe more useful with younger people. And when we have home OCT or some people might, you know, just open up a clinic and just have patients come in for OCTs and then call them later. I haven't found that works with my flow, but I have done a lot of telephone calls with patients where I'll talk with them on the phone. I'll review their chart. We'll talk about when they feel comfortable coming in. I'll answer their questions. I'll send them an answer grid if they don't have one. But ultimately, I think that most of what we do is kind of like to see patients for management and to do active treatment. So usually, eventually, they need to come in. But if someone's a diabetic with no retinopathy or minimal retinopathy, we can talk on the phone, go through their case in that way, or someone with dry AMD who's been stable, that's you know good at accounting their symptoms. I do a telephone call with them now and then make the appointment. Hopefully, in three months, things will be better. And when you do that, are you capturing for that from a billing standpoint, or are you just doing that as a courtesy? Um, if they when when patients are called now when they're looking at my patient list ahead and if someone says that they're not comfortable coming in they they will be offered if they want to have a telemedicine call or a telephone call with me or if it's something that's not urgent to book it for 3 months from now and some patients have chose to have a telephone call so it's being offered as an appointment and it is being billed as a telephone call. There's like a code for five to 10 minutes, 11 to 20 minutes discussing their case. Gotcha, that's great. Judy, at the Medical College of Wisconsin, are you all adopting telemedicine? And if so, what's the approach that you're using? So um, to start with what uh, Caroline said about, you know, uh, have, having uh, some of uh, the appointments made right there while the patient's sitting before going out to the front desk. I think same thing can be said about um, payment or demographic uh, or history taking. I think in the future, we might want to have some sort of better portals where patients can input all of that even before coming in and even pay copay online. So that's one type of things that we can do uh, going forward, I think. And then as far as telemedicine, um, 
obviously the telephone call is one type, but I think we can do a hybrid model where patients can come in just for imaging, just for OCT, just for fundus, optus fundus, life field photos, which has shown to be as good as dilated eye examination in some studies. Um, Silolab um, uh, photo, if you, you know, before dilation, if one wanted to. So with these images, you know, we're so image intense uh, fields with these images, once you have that, you can always uh, do this virtual visit where we are able to um, put them in our uh, schedule as virtual visits. And the patients will log in uh, up to 30 minutes before the uh, allotted time, uh, the appointment time. And then uh, they have to log in within 30 minutes after that uh, appointment time, otherwise it cancels out. So during that one hour, they will uh, log in and then I can talk uh, with them uh, uh, via a video. And at that time I can show the OCT or Optus images as well. So it's almost as if they're sitting in my office, but uh, I can you know, take as much time and uh, telemedicine, you can bill based on time as well as uh, medical difficulty levels. So, um, you know, you, you can talk about different things, uh, address that and show the images, educate them um, and answer all their questions. Um, if a patient's family wants to be there, um, they can be uh, also logging in as well. Uh, we had some issues with uh, some of these apps not working with um, Android uh, phones. Um, versus iPhones, um, so uh, we worked on that, and we also worked on, you know, the logging out uh, if the patient didn't come in within 15 minutes. Um, so we extended that. So our IT department has been really working to push the telemedicine part. And the interesting thing is that certain subspecialties have just taken off with that endocrinology, like and uh, endocrinology. They you know they get all the labs. And then the, the um, uh, endocrinologist will have a virtual visit. So their numbers are almost 70% uh, of their in-person visits now just with telemedicine. So if they're able to do that based on getting labs, why can't we do that based on getting images? Because we are, you know, a lot of times we could just look at the OCT and we already know whether the patient needs injection or not. So perhaps we could do that. And also that might be a good way to use our technicians. You know, Carolyn, you mentioned about technicians. Um, many of them are worried about not having enough time and not giving, you know, not giving enough work hours. And some are being furloughed and so forth. So, so by utilizing them for imaging um, or education or getting, um, um, using them to get the patient onto the virtual waiting area by logging them in beforehand, um, they can be utilized in different ways so that they can still get their hours and get their wages um, and we don't have to let them go. Um, and then we're also talking about, you know, that doctors doing evening hours or Saturday hours, weekend hours as the, the revamping comes and we have to take care of all these patients. But uh, I think, you know, we could use imaging in an efficient way, uh, utilize our staff in an efficient way and then the, the uh, retina specialists, the doctors, can do the more cerebral decision-making part through, through telemedicine. So when you've done telemedicine, Judy, have you done it on, say, 20% of your patients, 10% of patients? What's been the patient feedback, and what's your feeling about doing it? So initially, uh, it takes a lot of hand-holding. 
There's a lot of upfront education. Um, we sometimes call them and go through step-by-step step before the actual virtual visit. Sometimes uh, we always give email of the instruction um, uh, uh, via email, um, what they need to do, how to set up their portal and um, uh, when to log on, you know, everything. So um, I would say, you know, the, the very elderly patients, they're not good. So, you know, I sort of triage out which patient might be interesting, interested in doing it. So initially when I first started, I worked mostly with uh, 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds or those who I know from uh, experience of seeing them uh, who are a little more um, in tune with the technology. So I selected it out to make my life easier and their life easier. Uh, so when you select good patients, they actually like it because they don't have to come in, they don't have to waste hours, and they don't have to come into a, a crowded building. Um, but um, uh, with this hybrid model, I've been able to get as much done as if they were in the office. The only downside is that, you know, obviously they still have to come in, but that visit is quite, quite uh, very quick because uh, they just get imaging and they go home. Maria, you suggested that telemedicine may be a permanent change here. Do you foresee this being the wave of the future? How do you see this crisis kind of evolving telemedicine very rapidly? Well, I, I think it has evolved telemedicine because, you know, in all fields, you know, like Judy mentioned in endocrinology, it's a no-brainer, you know, they don't really need to see the patients. They just need to see, and now that you have the sensors, you know, you can just get the whole log of all the patients, the same with blood pressures and a lot of things in internal medicine. Uh, and for us, I think we're, we are going to see probably a lot of patients that can come in, patients that are stable, maybe patients that have dry AMD, just coming in and get imaged, you know, twice a year and they can get, you know, and we can just call them. I think that will be a very efficient way, you know, because oftentimes, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of these follow-ups, you know, we can, all we really need is to look at the, at the image, you know, at the OCT or look at an out of fluorescence and we get an idea compared with the one before. And now with EMR, you know, you can do that from home. Uh, a lot of my patients actually are not computer savvy. You know, they're very elderly like Caroline. So I do a lot of uh, phone calls with them and you know, I just tell them, well, you know, your pictures show this or that, or they can send me pictures if their eyes red you know, or inflamed, I say, just take a picture of it. I had a patient that had a six nerve palsy and I said, well, you know, uh, take a, you know, look to the right, take a picture, look, and I, and I was able, you know, there's a lot that you can do uh, by phone call and just pictures. But I think moving forward, there are a lot of opportunities to use telemedicine more, you know, in different ways that we haven't thought about. So I think we need to think outside of the box as to how to be way more efficient, you know. And that is a great use for techs. For example, if, you know, if your techs are not doing anything a day you're in the OR, you know, they can be doing imaging. You know, we, we really have to like, if we think about it, the way we're seeing patients in many ways is the same way we were seeing patients 50 years ago. You know, the patient comes in, they get the vision test, they get this, they get that, you know. Uh, so, you know, because we're, we're creatures of routine, you know, it's like we just do things because that's the way it was always been done without thinking about, you know, whether it's necessary, what we can do different, what would make more sense, you know. 
And now that we have great imaging, I think it's a great opportunity. So John, uh, another uh, type of telemedicine that we already have that uh, we haven't talked about is actually 4C Home. 4C Home is a telemedicine. Um, um, uh, and um, I actually had a patient today uh, she went down to uh, Arizona for the baseball uh, training. Uh, she always goes every year to watch that, but uh, obviously they didn't have it, and she got stuck down there. There was no planes come back, and flights were all you know, canceled, and et cetera. And so she missed her um, follow-up appointment with me for uh, intermediate uh, dry AMD, but she does 4C home, so she actually carried it with her uh, down there. And then when she came back to uh, Wisconsin, she, you know, she called her office to make an appointment um, saying, I missed my appointment, I wanna get in. But since she doesn't need an injection, the front desk said, no, you're not considered urgent, emergent. So we are gonna be on the, the you know, backlog list. Well, apparently uh, two days ago, she got an alert on her 4C home. Um, so uh, she uh, called and then it, she got you know, urgently uh, put into my uh, clinic today. And uh, she actually had very, very early um, CNBM, uh, 2025 vision still. Um, so this is uh, one way that I think we can use uh, telemedicine for CM to detect um, early conversions um, in you know, what's considered non-urgent patients, uh, um, uh, one eye, uh, being treated or one eye already gone really bad, uh, the other eye with intermediate AMD or both eyes with intermediate AMD, the patients that we might be you know, saying, oh, you're not uh, as urgent. Well, we, we have the safety net uh, to uh, detect changes. Judy, let me ask you this. Is 4C home the gold standard in lieu of an exam and an OCT? Is it the gold standard for monitoring these patients if they're not going to come in? Well, first of all, not every patient is going to be a candidate for 4C home. They have to have certain level of vision, 2060 or better, and uh, uh, they can't have glaucoma or other visual field defects. And in the uh, 4C home study, about 29% of patient uh, subjects uh, who are enrolled couldn't do it. So um, there is a lot of upfront education, setting it up and being able to do, but once they start doing it, many of my patients are sort of uh, fanatic about it. They do it almost every day or in, uh, you know, at least uh, five days a week or four days a week. So, um, and it's, you know, they find it easy to do. Um, whether this is gold standard or not, well, we know uh, from the study that it's better than AMSLR grid alone, you know, just telling people to you know, do your monocular check with AMSLR grid. And the study was even stopped early because it was found to be better than AMSO grid alone. So I, I think it's better than nothing. But uh, is it 100% sensitive? No. Is it 100% specific? No. There's going to be some false positives and false negatives. So I don't think we can ever go without seeing any of these patients ever and just put them in 40 home. But I think we can at least lengthen out the interval between visits. Um, with more reliance, confidence. Gotcha. Carolyn, vision apps, like these apps you can find on your phone that can check visual acuity and show you an AMPS or grid. Are those a reliable way to check patients' vision um, routinely in lieu of examinations? Well, I think that anything helps. Um, 
Whether they're reliable, I don't know if we have big studies to support that. I do mail a lot of my patients. I've been mailing them a vision chart and an AMSA grid and going through it with them. But, you know, one population that we, you know, we're kind of not seeing so much of are our nursing home patients and our patients who are in retirement homes. Those patients might not even be allowed to come out if they needed to come see us. So I just saw someone the other day who had to get special permission to come and see me who, who has active neovascular AMD and needed treatment. So, I mean, anything we could do that would be, you know, whether home OCT monitoring when it's, when it's available for prime time or, you know, even vision screening in a nursing home, having someone come in to do that would help these populations that, you know, we're not even really getting to, to get to right now. And home OCT, is that, is that the silver bullet? Is that the one thing that we need to do true telemedicine and monitoring these patients? Um, I think it would be pretty good. I think it would be, um, you know, there's multiple different companies working on different types of home OCT, some of them with smaller fields and larger. And I, I certainly think that in neovascular AMD and in diabetic macular edema, it's going to give us a lot of information that will, you know, affect whether we want to treat these patients or not. So. Judy, what about you? Do you think home OCT is the answer for the COVID era? I think it would be a game changer. If I, I wish we had it yesterday. I wish it was, you know, already readily available um, because it will give me more confidence about um, when to bring these patients who need uh, injections. Because right now we're sort of guessing, you know, are you a four to six weeker or 10 to 12 weeker? You know, we've been sort of treating and extending. But even those who we extended to 10 to 12 weeks, you know, maybe they don't need another injection for, you know, longer. And maybe we can go through the this COVID uh, uh, hot period uh, with just home monitoring with uh, home OCT. And the nice thing about home OCT, uh, um, I hear is that you as physician can actually look at the um, images as well. Um, so um, you can look into the patient uh, even uh, before the alert goes off if you wanted to know, uh, uh, you know how a certain patient is doing. And you can also set the uh, uh, threshold of when the alert could go off. You, know, you could set the uh, threshold of how much fluid if, uh, is uh, tolerated before the alert goes off. So there uh, is a lot of um, uh, you know, things that you can personalize for that patient. And you also can get paid for it as a retina specialist, unlike 4C Home, Home OCT, uh, when you interpret the uh, images, you will get paid for uh, uh, as well. So I think um, as we move into longer duration, uh, durable drugs, um, it, uh, the homelessness is even going to be more important to uh, um, personalize, individualize the treatment. Maria, Judy brought this up, is the more durable drugs. You know, a variety of drugs are in clinical trials right now. Um, what things are you the most excited about that's in clinical studies right now that could be a game changer going forward? Well, I think the gene therapy is very, very exciting uh, for macular degeneration uh, because, you know, what would be better than having your own eye produce anti-VEGF? Um, 
you know, when we really think about cost, uh, and I always think about cost because I work, you know, with a fairly poor population. Uh, so the home monitoring systems, you know, the it's not only that they need to be able to use it, they need to be able to afford it. Uh, so that is, that is a, a huge limitation, you know, on that. But I, you know, when, when we really think about it, if you could just, let's say, you know, do a surgery, uh, you know, and I, I've been advocating this uh, for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. If you can just do one surgery, which outside of the U.S., a vitrectomy is very, um, it's not really that costly. It's probably uh, in most places throughout, it probably is the cost of two injections or three. You know, and basically permanently stabilize that patient. You know, that may be the way to go. You know, when, when we really think about risks of endothelitis over injections over time, you know, the risk is super low with one injection. When, when we're talking somebody being treated for 30 years, you know, every month, and you do the math, then, you know, the risk is, is pretty high, especially in, in, in populations that have a higher incidence. So there's, there's a lot of things we can, we can think about. So we could have something for macular degeneration either. Uh, I, I've always been very excited about the reservoir because if we can just inject someone every six months, you know, that would be huge. You know, we can just see these patients, you know, twice a year. That is very exciting. The gene therapy is super exciting. You know, the cost will be an issue too, you know, like everything. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, in a sense, you know, when I think about it, it, if it were my eye, I would rather have somebody do a surgery and stabilize me and not have me have to be in every month because the problem is not, you know, so much the monthly visits is what happens if you get ill, if you lose your insurance, if you can't come in, you know, you get rebound effects, you may lose the eye, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that we never really talk about because we tend to talk about best case scenarios. So I'm very excited about, uh, I, I would say, uh, those two things, gene therapy for AMD uh, and the reservoir system uh, for anti-VEGFs. And you alluded, Maria, to the OR. How has is, how is the OR environment changed post-COVID? Uh, well, I can tell you about mine. Uh, I work in two surgery centers, and uh, all of them require us to be tested with PCR, the, the whole staff. Uh, every two weeks, actually. And uh, the patients, they all have to have PCR too, uh, with less than five days duration. Um, and we haven't had any positive cases come in, so I don't know what's gonna happen, you know, if, uh, if, if that happens. I, I did two, um, two patients under, under general, and you know, they had the whole protocol of just covering everything up, and then you had to wait uh, before going into the OR and the like. Uh, I use a 3D system, you know, I use the ingenuity for my cases and I think that's great because I'm not really that close so I don't have any problems with fogging of the oculars or any of those things which can be a problem, you know, when you're using the N95 and everything. So, you know, it, it is slower. Uh, what they're doing in my OR is they don't have, usually they had in the waiting area, the family members, now they wait in the car, they wait outside and they get called. Um, everybody gets temperature checks, you know, and, and the temperature checks, I think is something that every airport should have. Our airport is the only one actually in the U.S. that actually has the monitors that checks temperature because all of our cases, you know, that started uh, came from tourists, you know, coming into the islands. So they have a... Uh, 
when you come in, you get, uh, you first are offered the rapid test to every single patient, every single uh, person coming into the airport. And then, you know, uh, you can say yes or no, and then you're passed through the temperature sensors, uh, like in, they have in Korea and in most of the airports in Asia. And if it's positive, then you have to have the, uh, the rapid test, whether you want to or not. Uh, and then you pass to, the, to this other area of med students um, that ask you all of the information of where you have been, da -da -da, symptoms, this and that, and all your tracking information of the time you're going to be here, where you're going to be, and the like, and numbers to call in case you start feeling fever and everything. And I think, you know, that's something important moving forward. You know, my son came in a week and a half ago and left, and he said that in most airports in the U.S. there were no masks. People were not, you know, using any social distancing. So now you're seeing, you know, hot spots in, he was mentioning in particular the Charlotte airport where he was, and now that's a hot spot. So I think we have to be really, really conscious of all of these things. I, I think the population in many areas does not really understand, you know, the importance of all these different, different things to use on a daily basis. You know, you do a lot of product development and other things like that. Do you think this is going to limit the access of industry to the operating room? I, I actually, I don't think so. I think probably, you know, we're not going to be able to have, like right now, they're not allowing, you know, anybody else coming into the yard. But I think when this winds down, I think they probably will, you know, will be allowed in, but, you know, you know, one, probably one at a time only, probably, you know, they may require some testing for them. You know, once we have really good, testing in a population and we have you know we're going to start seeing like in new york you have a lot of people who have positive antibodies so then you know you feel more comfortable with making guidelines as to what to do and i think you know the main thing is to get people tested i i sent anti, i sent antibody tests we have plenty of them and, and you know the government is not doing such a great job as testing everybody so i order them on all my patients all my patients get uh, the rapid test order Wow. And the insurances all cover it here, even, you know, Medicaid. That's fantastic. Carolyn, I want to come to you and ask you about most promising drugs in, in development or products in development, and then the OR questions. How has COVID changed the OR for you? Um, well, let me talk about the OR first. So I think in our hospital, we kind of assume everyone is potential could potentially have COVID. So we practice the same, you know, high standards of cleanliness and cleaning the rooms. Everyone has a mask. They don't have an N95 mask unless our hospital follows the CDC guidelines. They only use the N95 for aerosolized generating procedures. So they provide regular masks for us. Before the operating room, we do test people with, um, uh, not the rapid test and an anti and an, the other test that we're using, and it's very um, highly sensitive and specific. It takes about eight hours turnaround, so I have to get it one to two days before surgery. If someone did have to have immediate surgery, they would treat them as potentially COVID positive. Um, everyone we've screened so far has been uh, negative, except for one person who had no fever and no symptoms, except when we asked her, when I got the test results, I did call her, and she said, oh, I did lose my sense of smell 
six days ago. So we don't screen people for temperature because it's only a one third of people that have fever. So we don't typically do that, but we do telephone screen people beforehand. So the one patient who was COVID positive did have a macula off RD that looked chronic in appearance. So um, we delayed um, a week. She actually didn't want to have surgery right away. And I think it's not a bad idea to delay a week because I wanted to make sure she didn't develop some sort of respiratory illness either because she had just become symptomatic. So she's pending surgery and it wasn't an acute retinal detachment. Um, and then uh, with regards to promising, I think the reservoir for drugs is going to be really promising. That's what I'm looking forward to. This whole situation has affected all of our ongoing clinical studies. So there's new things coming, but what about all the current studies and patients that have missed appointments because of that? We've had a lot of patients that were in studies, were afraid to come in, so they've had to maybe miss an appointment or two. So I'm not sure how that's going to affect the results of all the drugs that are in phase two and phase three trials now. Judy, let me ask you, Carolyn had a great point about that. Clinical trials, how far is this going to set back clinical studies in your opinion? I think this has a tremendous effect uh, depending on what stage that drug is in, whether it's phase one or two or three. Um, one example, um, I'm national study chair for protocol AE for DRCR Net, uh, retina network. And um, um, our primary outcome is four months, although study goes on for eight months. Um, we had to modify some of our protocol with, with the real in, uh, you know, uh, stressing not compromising the integrity of the study and the uh, final outcome, but we allowed the window to be a lot longer um, just so that uh, we can try to get through some of this COVID situation. But um, the interesting thing is that I think it's um, very um, institutional related. If you're at a, you know, a university or a big institution, there's so many more mandates and there are so many more, it's black and white. It's either this or never that. Whereas in private practice, uh, there's a little more leeway as an individual uh, uh, retina specialist owning their practice, they have more um, leeway. So the interesting part is that for protocol AE, we only invited uh, sites that uh, enrolls very well, and that tends to be private practice uh, uh, and community um, uh, practices. And, and uh, so uh, fortunately, we were able to get most of uh, primary outcome because the uh, uh, private practice are still seeing research patients, whereas university or institutions um, like ours, we uh, can't see any um, research patients. So I'm, I'm quite concerned about that actually going forward. I'm also concerned about teaching uh, of our medical students and residents and fellows uh, currently, uh, all of our medical students are, you know, doing online, and you know that uh, as a medical student, it's not just from online. You actually have to do something, uh, as are the residents. So, I'm concerned about uh, how long this is going to be. Uh, how can we safely bring them back, um, uh, as well? Yeah, that's great points, Judy. Uh, just a few questions that came in, and we'll be very brief with these. Um, Michelle Roy asks, and we'll throw this to Maria. Maria, are you seeing 
uh, fewer DME patients than you used to compared to AMD patients, or do you feel like your DME patients are maintaining their visits? No, I, I'm actually, you know, I screen, I do like Caroline, you know, when I, when this whole thing started and the lockdown started, I just went through all the cases with that, my EMR and the DME patients, I try to extend them more because I know they don't really depend on the injection so, so much. So if maybe they were on a vast in every four weeks, I told them let's extend it to, you know, to seven weeks unless you notice a change. Uh, so I, I had been doing that, you know, on my, you know, on my own. Uh, a lot of the, interestingly, a lot of the AMD patients, they really, really want to come in. I have this 99-year-old man who uh, has only one eye. He still works as an engineer. And he, you know, he called me, the daughter called me. He goes, I don't want him to come in. But he insists. He told me that he's going in. He has to be seen. He needs his injections. So... So he came in and what I do is I just try to keep them in and out, you know, as, as quickly as possible. Judy, do you see more of a role for steroids for DME in this era, or is it still something that anti-VEGF should be the, the primary driving therapy? Well, studies uh, such as Portal U from DRCR Retina Network show that uh, anti-VEGF uh, if given appropriately, is still better than um, adding steroids. Um, whether we should start with steroids, nobody knows because you know, studies haven't done that. But um, um, you know, obviously, there's still the side effects, concerns, cataracts, and uh, glaucoma issues. So, if a you know, it should be a, a good talk with the patient, uh, and uh, depending on the patient's uh, desires we can consider you know, longer acting steroids as well. I, I, I don't think it's off the table. Um, however, um, I still go by the anti-VEGF uh, route that I've been doing. I also do a lot of, uh, I've been doing a lot of injection only uh, uh, clinics uh, even before COVID. And I think that's going to continue to uh, stay. I don't do imaging at every visit. So again, this allows efficiency um, of uh, in and out. And Carolyn, you alluded to this efficiency of doing injections if a patient just needs injections. What do you do to monitor their fellow eye? Do you do an OCT when they come in to monitor their fellow eye or only if they have some visual complaints or decreased vision? Well, I think that um, if their other eye, if, uh, if their other eye is a scar, I won't do an OCT. But if their other eye has dry AMD or, you know, as good visual potential, I'll do an OCT in the other eye as well. They don't have to be dilated, um, or I'll take a quick peek. It doesn't really take much more time to do another, um, an OCT in the other eye, maybe just, you know, 60 seconds more. So. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're coming up on an hour here. You guys, I feel like we could talk for four hours, honestly. So many great and wise ideas uh, that I think will have people thinking for weeks after this. Maria, Judy, Carolyn, I want to thank you all for joining me. I want to thank you all for watching if you're on Facebook Live or if it's later on the podcast. Please tune in next week to the next new Retina Radio. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. 
This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.